Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We are starting a new series today. We're going to be in Romans about three or four weeks. Romans is actually worth a great deal of our time. It it wouldn't be too much to say we should spend a year in Romans. But in order to kind of line up with our Bible reading plan, the F260, we're going to be in Romans just for about three or four weeks. I'll preach this week on Romans 1, and then Cody's going to preach next week, and then we'll actually be in Romans 16 for our uh, fifth anniversary. But today is, is kind of a challenging passage as we talk through what is foundational for our faith through the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 32. We'll have it up on the screen. You can also open your Bible or you can open your phone to read it with me. We read in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but it is a challenging passage because what Paul's trying to get us across to us is a foundational truth that God is revealing himself to humanity in the gospel. That's how he's chosen to show humanity who he is. But there's some tough truths in this that we'll have to deal with and wrestle with. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. 
although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. The word of God. I know it was a tough word, but we still got to say it louder than that anyway. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, in a small town, there was two parents who had two little boys who were elementary aged. And they were just kind of rotten kids. Like, they got in trouble a lot. You know how brothers can get in trouble. And these two elementary age boys were getting in trouble a lot. And the parents were on their last leg, and they didn't know what to do. So they heard of this pastor in town who was really good with, like, little kids and getting them to change their perspective and begin obeying their parents. So these exasperated parents took these two naughty little brothers to this pastor and sat down with him. And the littlest boy sat down with the pastor first to talk. And the pastor sat with the little boy, just the two of them. And he said to the little boy, where is God? He was trying to start a spiritual discussion so that the boy could kind of have a reference point for his behavior. But when the boy was asked, where is God? He didn't have an answer. He just kind of stared at the pastor with wide eyes. And the pastor said, son, where is God? Well, the little boy felt nervous. He, he didn't have an answer, and so he just kept quiet again. A third time, the pastor asked the little boy, son, where is God? At that moment, the little boy got up and ran out of the room. He ran right past his brother, who was waiting for his turn to talk to the pastor. He ran right past his brother into another room and slammed the door. And his brother came in and said, what's going on? Why did you run away? And the little boy said, God is missing, and they think we did it. <laughs> God is missing, and they think we did it. But you know what? I, I find something about that phrase, God is missing, resonates with a lot of people. A lot of people feel like God is missing from this world, like God is missing from their lives. And I find as I talk to people, there's really two reasons that they say this. The first reason that they think that God is missing or he doesn't exist or he's just not here is, is they look out and they see the brokenness in the world. They see a world full of brokenness and pain and evil. And they ask a very good question. How in the world can God be here? How could God be present? How could God even be real if the world is this broken? It just doesn't make sense. But then the second objection I hear that people say is not just in the world, but in here in my life. If I'm experiencing so much pain and longing in my life, how can God be real? How can God be real if I'm experiencing all these hardships and longings? If God is real, then he certainly must not care about me. And so I find a lot of people looking at the world being broken and their life being full of pain, feel like God is missing. And sometimes those people either stop believing or don't never believe or just walk away. I mean, in some ways you can't blame them, right? Like if you feel like God's not here or God doesn't care, then you say, well, if God doesn't care, then I don't care and I'm going to walk away. But even in that, 
even for people who don't believe in God or who feel like God is missing from this world, there, there's still this longing in our hearts to be connected to something greater than ourselves, to be connected to this thing behind the scenes, this person or this being or this force who is good and has purpose for our lives. There's this longing in us for God, even if we find that we struggle to believe in God. We feel like God should be here and present, even if we believe he's not. Julian Barnes, in his memoir, the first line of his memoir was this famous quote, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. In other words, even though he didn't believe in God, he still longed for the presence of a God. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said that it's often like if you're married and you wake up and your spouse has just left the bed before you woke up and the bed's still warm and the sheets are still ruffled and you know that they were there, but they're not there. N.T. Wright says there's all the difference in the world between waking up in a single bed and waking up in a double bed with nobody on the other side. Many in our culture may be atheists or agnostics, but they still find themselves wondering why the other side of the bed still feels warm and the sheets a little rumpled. We may believe God is missing, and yet at the same time there's some longing for him to be near and to be present. But what if, what if it's not that God is missing, but that our assumptions about God blind us from seeing him? What if it's not that God is missing, but our assumptions about God blind us from seeing him? Or what if it is that God is actually present, like not distant, but actually present in this world and revealing himself, we just don't know what to look for, or if we're honest, we just don't want to look. Romans 1 helps us answer those questions, and it says this, God is present in this broken world, and he is revealing himself. But there's something in us that doesn't quite know what to look for, or if we're honest, doesn't want to look. The first reason that Paul tells us in Romans 1 that we, we don't really know what to look for or we don't want to look is because we assume that God is like us. We assume that if God is going to reveal himself to us as people, that he would do it in the way that we would if we were God. But God is not like us. In fact, Paul says in verse 23 that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. What Paul is talking about is idolatry. What he's talking about is humanity's propensity to make God into a wooden stone or metal block or some sort of image that suits their purposes. Now, many of us don't do that, but there's always this tendency in the human heart to make God into something that we can control, to make God like us. 
And we do this in several, we, in several ways. One of the ways that we, in our minds, take this idea of God is we always assume that God is going to be on our team, whatever team that is. If you look back throughout history, every people group that has a connection to some sort of divine being, they usually tell the story about that divine being in a way that makes their people the good guys. Like God is on our side and we're against everybody else. But what's interesting is that throughout history, that always leads to the people group saying, God is like us, he's on our team, and therefore we are more important than other people, and therefore we can do whatever we want to other people. If you look at the doctrine of manifest destiny in our culture's history, this was the idea that God was behind the westward expansion from the eastern colonies all the way out to the west, and that anyone who's American can move west and push out anyone who's in our way because God is on our side. And so we're going to ignore God's commands. We're going to murder and steal and plunder because God's on our side. Do you see what happens when we assume God is like us and we assume God is on our team? But here's the thing, it, it just doesn't happen at one point in history. History is marked by this kind of thinking. When I was pastoring in St. Louis, I pastored a lot of people who were from West Africa and Central Africa. And the reason that those people had left the African continent and come to the United States was because of civil war and tribal conflict that had happened. And as I began to talk to them, we had people from di different tribes in our church who were at war when they were home. But as I began to talk to people, I realized that they both told the story as if they were the good guys and the other tribe was the bad guys and God was on their side and God was against this other tribe. But the challenge was the other tribe did the exact same thing. They assumed that God was like them. See, what happens is even when power shifts, it's often that the groups that are oppressed do the exact same thing to the oppressor when the power changes. There is a propensity in the human heart to assume that God is like us and he's on our team. And that's because there is this thing in us that says God is like me and he approves of what I do. I read a quote by Alanis Morissette, the singer who said, and she said, um, I finally came to this realization where I realized that God doesn't care how we live our lives. In other words, we can do whatever we want. Now, she had no reasoning for that. It was just a conclusion that she came to herself. And there's this reasoning in our heart that wants to align God with our hearts rather than align our hearts with God. We want God to align up and, and approve of our lives rather than judge our lives by God's standards. And what ends up happening is that you and I make God fit into this box, fit into this image. We, we make this thing an idol in our mind about our idea of God. And when we do that, we're not actually interacting with a real God. We're interacting with a projection of our imagination. Tim Keller puts it this way, if you pick and choose what you want to believe about God and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? 
you won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. When when we make God into our own image, when we assume he is like us, we just write everything off in our life and say, I assume that God would approve of these things, but we're not actually interacting with the God of the universe. It's just a projection of our own imagination. And one of the reasons that we have such a hard time with this is because you and I worship our feelings and emotions. In our culture, our feelings, how you feel about something is put on the throne of your life. And we look at our emotions and we feel our emotions and we're taught to center our lives around what we feel is right. And when we do that, we, we, we assume that God feels what we feel. We assume that God has emotions that line up with our emotions. We assume that God sees things in our life and because we feel okay about them, God must feel okay about them too. But it's so interesting to think, I mean, when you're married, one thing you learn quickly is that your spouse does not feel the same way you feel about things. If you assume that they do, you are in for a rocky situation. But the, the quicker you learn that someone else has different emotions in you, the more healthy that relationship can, can become. Just because we feel joy about something or we feel pleasure about something doesn't mean God's feeling the exact same way. God has an emotional life, and he has things that he is compassionate about and has loves towards, and he also has things that make him angry or frustration or bring him joy. And God's emotional life is different than our emotional lives. But one of the ways that we assume that God is like us is we assume that just because we feel something, God must feel that way too. But what Romans 1 says is something very different. Romans 1 is, is tense and then it talks about God's judgment. And most of the time when we talk about God's judgment, we sort of picture this cosmic temper tantrum that God has where he's just so angry, he's kicking all the blocks over in his way. But Romans 1 says something very different about how God's judgment begins. Part of God's judgment is actually letting you follow your feelings. Part of God's judgment is stopping you is stopping you, and once you continue to push against God's commands, he lets you go and lets you pursue exactly what your heart desires. Judgment doesn't start off with God throwing a temper tantrum. It starts with God releasing us when we throw a temper tantrum. Look at what he says in verse 24 and 26. Paul says, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. In other words, humanity was continuing to push against God and ignore the conviction that God was bringing in their lives. And so as part of his judgment, he said, I will no longer correct you. You can go your own way. What that means is what we naturally feel in our heart might be the exact opposite of how God feels about something. See, God's love for us, 
His love for humanity is that he actually brings conviction in our life. If we can call conviction like a negative feeling emotion, it doesn't feel good to be convicted about our behavior or our lives, and yet it's God's love that puts conviction in our heart so that you and I know what is out of bounds for the people of God. See, in our culture, we think anything that causes us feelings of guilt or feelings of shame must be bad. Just write it off. Let it go. But friends, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. If my kid continues to run towards the street and there's busy traffic, my voice is going to get louder and louder. Stop. Don't go there. What they feel as I warn them is secondary to the fact that I'm trying to get their attention. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. I find that many people who actually walk away from the faith feel euphoric. Like I had a friend who grew up in a Christian home and his dad was a pastor. And I hadn't seen him in like 15 years and I got together with him one night. He's like, yeah, I'm I'm not a Christian anymore, bro. I was like, how's it feel? He said, amazing. And that didn't surprise me. It honestly didn't surprise me because what, what he said was, I'm tired of feeling conviction about my behavior. Like, I just want to do what I want to do. And let me tell you, pursuing your life and, and following sin, it feels good. It feels great for a time. But that doesn't mean just because you feel something, that doesn't mean that God is approving of your behavior. See, we're so blinded by the fact that we assume God is like us that we miss that God's love is actually, part, is actually shown through him bringing conviction into our life. God uses negative emotions to bring about positive change. And if you're a parent, you understand that. His conviction is a sign of his love and his pursuit He's not letting go. So why in this passage, though, does Paul sort of pick on sexuality or even homosexuality um, as an example of this? Well, just to clarify, when Paul says the word natural, he's not talking about the natural feelings that a person has about their sexuality. It's actually saying the exact, exact opposite. He's saying that there's something in nature that God has created. There's a way that God has designed sexuality, and sexuality is one of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity. But humanity is constantly saying, I want to make this into my image. I want to use this for my purposes. I get to define the rules around this rather than looking to how God has designed it. How I feel about sexuality matters more than what God created it for. And Paul is using that as an example of what it means to do this very thing, to assume that God is like us and to assume that God aligns with our heart and approves of whatever we feel. Now, every person, and I want to say this clearly, every person, regardless of their sexual history or their sexual past or their sexual present, is a person made in the image of God and deserving of dignity, honor, and respect. And yet, just because we feel something about sexuality doesn't mean that that's what God says is true for sexuality. 
And part of our humanity wants to dig our heels into our current behavior and just assume that God approves of whatever we're doing and press on and close our eyes to the obvious. See, it's, it's not just that we assume God is like us, it's that we actually hide God from us. As Christians, we talk about hiding from God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. They went and hid from God. But what Paul's saying here is not that. He's saying that humanity hides God from their sight. Like we go out of our way not to see him. To quote the little boy in the story from the beginning, God is missing and we did do it. What does he mean? What Paul's getting at is that we can't see God because we don't want to. Because we don't want to see God. We dig our heels in and because everyone is going a certain direction in our culture, it must be right. Look what he says in verse 18 and verse 19. People who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is to say, by the way they are living their lives, they're consciously trying to hide God from their sight. If I just keep going in this direction, I don't have to wrestle with the fact that God exists. People who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Now, someone might say, so you're saying that anyone that has questions about God, they're really just trying to ignore God? No. We have real questions about God. People who don't know God have real questions about God. How does the Trinity make sense? And why didn't God stop all those wars? And how can the church have such big failures? Those are real questions. But what Paul is saying is what is always present in those questions and in our hearts is this desire to be in charge of our life and not submit to God. So we hide God. We we look the other way. We close our eyes to the obvious. But from God's perspective, he has made it obvious that he is here and he is revealing himself. In verse 20, it says that his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his eternal power, his eternal power in divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. Eternal power is this idea that there is a being outside of time and space and matter. Now, now some people would say, think positive thoughts because the universe is on your side. Where do you get that from? (laughs) Where does that come from? Well, we all have this natural inclination to connect with something bigger than ourselves, but it is God, the personal God, the the God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who created the world, who's outside of time and outside of space and outside of matter, and his divine nature being that he is not like us. He is personal, but he is not a human being. He's a being that's not human. He's divine. He's He's not like us. And some people say, well, I could never believe in that because science has disproven faith. And what you're talking about, Pastor John, you're just making stuff up. Well, let me say this. 
The, soup, the existence of the supernatural, the existence of a being who's outside of time, space, and matter has not been disproven yet by science. In other words, science can't disprove the supernatural. In fact, the scientific view as the all-encompassing worldview is still a view that you have to take by faith. You can't prove that science is the best way to look at the world from now until eternity. Science is great. Science explains so much about the world, but it doesn't explain everything. Because you and I were made to live a life of dignity, honor, meaning, and purpose. And yet I find some explanations that science gives for those things fall drastically short. Tomorrow morning, go to the beach. Go to the beach and put your toes in the water at sunrise as the water washes over your feet. And look off in the distance and and see the, the burning hot sun come up over the horizon and stare at the clouds as they turn fiery shades of pink and yellow and orange. And as you hear the wind rustle through the palm trees and, and look at the people who are in love walking in the morning along the beach and how in love they are. And as you see all that, say to yourself this, this is all an accident. This is all an accident. None of this was on, on purpose. It all happened by chance. This is all a cosmic accident. I'm an accident. Those other human beings are an accident. The beauty that I'm experiencing, the beauty that they're experiencing being in love has no deeper meaning. All of this is just chemicals in my brain. Whatever happens in this life is survival of the fittest. It's all an accident. Does that fit our experience of the world? Or do we not naturally feel made for something that gives us dignity and honor and meaning and purpose? The Christian view of the world that there is a God who is eternally powerful and has divine nature explains better our experience of pain and beauty and suffering and love. Could it be that God is not missing? Could it be that God is not hiding but that we have chosen to hide him from our view. That's what Paul says in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. Paul is saying that our core problem in not being able to see God is not that God is missing but that we have lied to ourselves. That we have consciously suppressed his existence and figured out any way, whether it's morally or supernaturally or emotionally, to push him out of our view. And yet at the same time, God is the solutions to the very questions that we have about why there is pain in the world. Because God hates pain. He didn't create this world for you to live a life of, of pain. He created it beautiful and whole. And the brokenness that we experience in this world, we never take the chance to look at the fact that we are part of the very pain that we experience. In verse 29 through 31, Paul says, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, Murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, 
God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Now, first of all, have you ever been the recipient of one of those types of evils? It is incredibly painful. It is not fun. It hurts. It can do damage and cause trauma. And yet, what Paul is saying is God hates these things. God had never planned for these things to be part of his creation. It was humanity that rebelled against him and brought these things into the world. But here's the hard part. We're not just victims of these things. We are participants in them. Have you ever been unmerciful? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever been unloving or boastful? God is saying these are the things that are wrong with the world, and they're not just things that victimize us. They're things that we actively participate in, but that God wants to judge these things. That's why in verse 32, he says, they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die. That, that seems a little strong, doesn't it? <laughs> they deserve to die. Well, from God's perspective, judging these behaviors and those who participate with those behaviors is how he is going to fix the brokenness in this world. It's how he's going to bring healing. Can you imagine a world with no more gossip? No one ever gossiped again. But he fixes it by judgment. That is, he's going to look at every city and, and rid it of evil. He's going to look on every street and he's going to pour his wrath out against the evil on that street. But then he's going to look in every heart and no action will be hidden from his sight. And if we're honest, that's horrible news. That's really bad news for you and me. Because even as I read through that list, I feel negative emotions. I feel conviction. I'm guilty. From God's perspective, I have evil in here. But if you're willing to let the bad news sink in, there's amazingly good news. There's good news that goes deeper than the bad news. That God ultimately reveals himself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God's primary way he wants to be known is through the good news. In verse 16, that started our passage off, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not to the good people, not to the people who just have a little bit of evil, but for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, it is the power of God for salvation. That is to say, from God's perspective, the most broken thing about humanity is our relationship with him. That because of our rebellion, because of our evil, we are separated from him and enemies against him. And God hates that sin. But rather than punishing you when you rest in Jesus Christ, the good news is that Jesus takes the punishment of your sin for you. 
God's wrath against all these evil things that you and I hate as well is poured out not on the people who committed them, but on the one who never committed any of them. And in this is the way God reveals himself to humanity. Verse 17 says, A righteousness, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. God's letting humanity know who he is through this good news. His, his righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will, will live by faith. The righteousness of God is being revealed to humanity in Jesus Christ because Jesus came from heaven and he lived on earth and he never, ever participated in evil. Never. Not once. But not only that, he was the victim of the ultimate evil. He died on the cross, though he was sinless. He was a, a victim of unrighteousness, though he was righteous. In the righteous wrath of God, he willingly absorbed on the cross for you and me. God's wrath against our evil was diverted on the Jesus who willingly took it. He died the death that you deserve to die, so that in his life you might live. In this righteousness that's being revealed, it's not a religion, it's not a pathway, it's a gift. It's a declaration over you that though you are evil, you have been declared righteous in God's eyes. This isn't 10 steps to a better spirituality. God's revealing himself by declaring sinners righteous. And the righteousness isn't just forgiveness of your past. It's not just that you have a clean slate. It's that you have a whole new status before a holy God who is our creator. And that status is child, beloved. You are hidden in the son of God, meaning that when Jesus looks at you or when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ, he sees the righteous one, and it is in that that God reveals himself. See, listen, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and God exchanged his son for us. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and God exchanged his son for us. So that when we look at God, Though we still struggle with evil, we no longer see him as just the righteous judge, but loving father. Loving father who puts his very spirit in us so that as you and I experience the brokenness of this world, we actually become his agent for healing. We actually participate with him in the healing and showing mercy and love and compassion. And a day is coming when whatever pain you feel in your life, you will be able to meet your heavenly father face to face. He will wipe every tear from your eyes and there will be no more crying and no more pain. And he will banish evil and sin from his presence from your presence forever. Friends, God is not hiding. He is revealing himself in the message of his son. Do we have eyes to see it? 
Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. Download our app by searching New City HH in your app store. We'll see you next week.